Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Welcome, welcome. Hey, Becky. You know my favorite people in the world? Who is that? Well, we have an example of one of them today, (laughs) and they are someone who... like looks around and looks at inequities and says, I'm going to do something about it. And people who are dreamers and doers are such great visionaries to like take problems, set them on fire in terms of creating movements and creating resources around making the world better. And we have a huge visionary on the podcast today. So it is my great pleasure to introduce Travis Ning to our community. He is the co-executive director of Maya, which is a program serving indigenous girls in Guatemala. And people I am telling you, this organization is amazing. They are working to unlock and maximize the potential of young girls to lead transformational change. And that just sounds very high level and aspirational. But I want to read you this quote, because when I was on Travis's website, this one was the one that stopped me dead in my tracks and had me saying, we've got to do better. Today, over 129 million girls are currently missing out on an education, 96 million of whom should be enrolled in secondary school. Now, if you look at it through the lens of Maya, which is, you know, housed in Guatemala, in Guatemala, fewer than 20% of indigenous girls graduate from high school and only 2% go on to university. So Maya is all about connecting talent to opportunity to ensure that this population is no longer overlooked and that they have the tools to achieve their dreams. So if you are someone who is really is bought into investing in the next generation, investing in girls. I mean, I'm thinking about our friends, Tammy Tibbetts and Kristen Brand over at She's the First who are creating these global movements to empower girls in education. We just got another little member of our army here with Travis. So Travis, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're so excited to talk to you and learn about your mission. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you. I am just really curious about your journey because you spent many years in something that I have not heard much about, which is like the women's microcredit movement. And you did that in Asia and Latin America. And from that, you talk about learning a couple of really critical lessons. One is how a mother has unyielding commitment to improve her family situation, which has to be one of the most powerful forces on earth. And the second one is how education plays a pivotal role in breaking free of cyclical poverty and making informed choices. And so you took those two lessons, you took these experiences, and you made this incredible organization that is doing amazing things for young girls. How did this start? Where is your, where does your journey begin and how did it lead you here? Uh, wow. Well, thanks. Um, I have to give a ton of credit to my parents for the microcredit part of that equation. Um, they created a microcredit organization called Friendship Bridge, which is still thriving today. They set that up in my bedroom when I was in eighth grade. Um, so it, it 
was something that was very much a part of where I came from, like physically, like in my bedroom, there was a desk. <laughs> oh like my literally gosh. built in your bedroom. It, it was their journey, really. The microcredit piece was really something they did. They started in Vietnam. They moved to Guatemala. And um, yeah, it continues to be an incredible tool for good in the world. And I think with Maya, when it first began, and again, my, my folks started Maya in 2008, um, it was a really, it was a, a transition in many ways going from mothers to their daughters was the big shift and just exploring the possibilities of what if, what if opportunity came earlier in the life of a woman and in prior to her having a lot of children and perhaps marrying the wrong guy or making decisions that she didn't have information to make prior, what if? And so it's really an organization based on that question. What if this opportunity presented itself earlier when she was only 12? When in the age of 12 for girls around the world is a really pivotal age. It's often when secondary school begins. It's often when they go into a sphere of invisibility. And certainly that's something that's really prevalent here in Guatemala, but it's certainly not unique to Guatemala as my colleagues at She's the First certainly indicated to you as well. And so that's where Maya begins is at age 12. Um, we are about 12 years old now and have been tinkering with that what if question ever since. And the biggest part of that came um, maybe 2014 or 15 when it was, you know, well, what if she had an education that was specifically designed for her? And that was an epiphany that did not come to me. I went to that really reluctantly when a few of our colleagues from Guatemala were visiting schools um, just in the U.S., just different charter schools, and saw that there's this variety. The word school can mean so many things. And often we all have this rigid mindset of when you say school, I think most of us hark to our own schools, but we went to school. Like I picture myself in 11th grade English class, and that definition is malleable. And so for my, my colleagues here in Guatemala who had never seen that word redefined, it was this mind-blowing moment. And we decided then, they convinced us on the fundraising side that they really wanted to try. These are Indigenous women that said, we could, we could build a school for girls that's designed for them, specifically for them and their talents. And that's what Maya has become, is a school really tailor-made for this unique population of 12 to 18-year-old girls who are the first in their families to do anything beyond the second or third grade. Um, They're the first in their families to speak Spanish. They're the first in their families to leave this village. And uh, we call them girl pioneers. And and it really is an incredible headwind that they're confronting for the rest of their lives, but also the possibilities that they represent, not just for themselves and their families, but to create a precedent in Guatemala and to show what is possible. And so Maya is still driving around that. We're up through 11th grade at this point. Um, so we're still not yet to the end of this journey and having graduates. COVID has thrown us for an incredible loop oh, as it has for everyone else, but also presented some pretty enormous opportunities for us to, 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 to accelerate certain areas. And I think in the world of philanthropy and fundraising, we all can see different opportunities now in silver linings in spite of what has been a, obviously a very tumultuous year. I mean, the dreaminess of Travis's parents standing up a nonprofit where they are pouring into women. And then the more that they learn, 
they're figuring out, okay, how can we prevent some of these systemic things that are happening in this nonprofit by pouring into this area? And I'm just, I'm, I'm like caught up in just how inspiring it is, like, and how that must have been for you as like a 14 year old kid watching your parents like wage this war and you're like living in Colorado. And I just think that I, this, there's a stat on your website that as a mom, especially a mom of daughters, I read this and it, and I was straight shook by it. I mean, it said, you know, while you were founded in 20, 2007, it was created with a focus on a younger generation of women who were born into the quadruple discrimination, which is they were poor, they were female, they were rural, and they were Mayan, whose fate would normally be to drop out of school, marry and mother, and repeat the poverty cycle. And I just think as a parent, you have so many dreams for your kids. And if that is your reality, I just think about, you know, Maya coming into this organization and the hope that's born out of that. And then what education can do to invigorate those communities and empower those girls. It's just a beautiful story. I'm just so glad you're in the world. Thanks. Thanks. It's uh, I think there's a piece to the story that I really want to highlight. Um, and yes, my, my parents played a fundamental role in and it's been an incredible privilege to be a part, be a part of this journey since 2010. Um, but I think all of this happens because of the women running Maya that are here. And, and that's often a voice that it can't be on this podcast, but it should be. And it should right. be the voice that is really, um, really articulating the what and the how and the why of Maya, because they're the women that have overcome exactly what you're describing, Becky. They, they were born into that situation themselves and have defied all odds to get beyond that and even to create a school that is now designed to defy odds. And all we really do on our end as fundraisers is to facilitate that process. Um, so it's just want to, shouldn't give them a huge shout out because it really is their efforts and their commitment and their empathy that makes the whole world go round. Well, it's incredibly inspiring. And I think we talk a lot about legacy and just the family legacy that you're living out too is just so powerful to lean into um, where I'd love to kind of get your feedback too is just hearing y'all are such a global mindset family. I mean, starting in Vietnam to Guatemala to Colorado, what's this connection, you know, to the country? What drew your family to specifically serve? I mean, they're obviously with a global mindset, you see so many needs. What drew y'all to serve specifically here? And then I'd love to dive more into the women that you're serving. I mean, I think everyone I know has always cautioned themselves and everyone else to never go work within the family business. Right. <laughs> and it is complicated. Um, however, I think as a family, we discovered this place when I was backpacking in college, you know, just kind of wandering around as we all, all had the opportunity to do. And if, if we were afforded that opportunity um, and Guatemala statistically has the most need in the hemisphere, it's the, it's got the worst gender equity gap in the Americas and at the very bottom of that ladder, that totem pole of empowerment are the Mayan women. And so if you're going to look anywhere to work on girls empowerment in this hemisphere, Guatemala seems to be ground zero in terms of need. And obviously it's reflected in, in our everyday news in the U S when you look at, you know, this, these huge caravans of humans and, and desperate people that are looking for opportunity uh, to me, this, the equation is really clear that it all lines up well if you have this then you have that it's an xy sort of formula that makes perfect sense so if you want to tackle that from either a 
any angle of health, education, just social justice, just good, the, the most sensible intervention, that's it. Like I said, I was very reluctant to jump into this. Um, I had worked previously in Mexico with an amazing organization called Uconi, um, and it focuses on street-involved children and families, and came to Guatemala to check this out to basically just give a, a no. Like, I just wanted to say no at first. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and honestly, I'm a father of sons, so it, it, I, there's no, I do have a ton of sisters, but I am a father of sons, and, and this was a natural connection for me. I'd worked with youth endeavors around the world prior to this but when i saw what's called the girl effect and i'm sure tammy and kristen and she's the first talked a lot about this is just this incredible so there's a selfishness in this for me and that it's immediate gratification to see when when a need is met and the opportunity is connected how fast this happens and how transformational and it's in our mission the transformational power of rose leadership it cascades over everything. It's environmental, it's health, it's education, it's economic prosperity. It really is the closest thing to a silver bullet we have in the world right now. And, and it's all right there. The nascent talent is all right there. Guatemala has a ton of problems, but it's sitting on top of a gold mine of talent. And it's just a question of, of figuring out how to connect up the points to where that, that talent can actually surface and assert itself in a way that this country desperately needs. Okay. I really, I love everything that you've said. And I just think the fact that you recognize you're sitting on this gold mine of the silver bullet is here by training, equipping these women and giving them the resources that they need. But I wanted to ask you something about what you said earlier is y'all have developed curriculum or just the way you support specifically for these women, these girls. What does that look like? Wait, how is it different than just standard education? What are the things that are unique to your model that um, allow it to thrive so you know clearly in the culture there? I think the, the number one point, and I think this defies a little bit of convention at least here in Guatemala. And John, I know you spent time working and living abroad as well, and perhaps you can relate to this. Um, I think traditionally interventions here in Guatemala have really been what we call like gringo driven. You know, a, a well-intended person from the north, the Yankee rolls in on their white horse, sets up shop, tells people what they need to do. Um, and the intentions of that action are benevolent and virtuous, and the impact is often not. Yeah. Um, and I think what really defines Maya and makes this whole world go round, like I said before, are the women that are from the community out there that are running it. It really is just... I feel like I'm an offensive lineman. I know this is a big football group I'm talking to right now. Like I'm just I understand. Blocks. I understand what you're saying. I Keep get going. It. <laughs> I'm just I'm just blocking for other people that are running so much faster. And and it's these women that that my co-executive director named Norma. I mean, she's really the one that's leading that charge. We're just setting the table for them. And um, I think that in a connection way with the, the girl pioneers that we serve. Who else? And if you look at statistically, and these are stats from the U.S., same race, same gender connections in educational setting are the way forward. Um, and, and I think if you look at the way that traditional development has been done with a white face serving not white populations, there's a huge gap there. there as much as we try to empathize with the situation, I'm from Colorado. There's, there's fundamentally no way I can do that. But if it's someone who looks and sounds and acts just like you, that's leading the charge, it's a whole different way. And so I think we bring in innovations from across the world into the school and methodologies. 
Um, we are very unoriginal in what we do in the sense that basically everything we do is poached with permission <laughs> largely, but why would right. we reinvent the wheel a thousand times? But we're really just trying to become a stage of innovation so that other organizations, experts can come and test out a methodology in our laboratory school. And the idea is that any program that wants it around Guatemala or in the region can come and take it. We only have one school. We only want one school. So the way we scale is by giving it away. And I think that abundance mindset is something in the international NGO context, I think is sorely missing. Um, but I think over as we all learned over 2020, we need a reframe and how we're trying to achieve social change. And I think this is the path, one of the many paths forward and disrupting the way things have been done. So I would say that that's, that's our secret sauce. The other piece, John, would be, it's, it's the whole girl approach, this ecosystem and the idea of, yes, learning math and literacy is absolutely important. But if you also don't know your own emotional language, you're stunted too. Um, it's as important to be able to navigate your own emotions, your own resilience. So we have a, a very deep social emotional support program that brings in families who otherwise are outliers. If you are a, a father, for example, and you decide to put your 12 year old daughter into this pathway, you've got a lot of social pressure coming your way too. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a lot of gossip about you. Um, the headwinds hitting dad are different, but often as strong as what's hitting mom and the daughter and so we need to bring everyone aligned. We found out the hard way that otherwise if the girl will have to make a choice between this trajectory and her family. And we want her to be able to have both. So we've designed a program that does both. It combines the girl and the family so she doesn't have to choose between those two impossible choices. Um, she can have both. Hey friends, we wanted to take a moment to thank our amazing sponsor, GiveButter, the world's fastest growing online giving platform, powering more than 35,000 causes. One of these is Family Reach, a national nonprofit dedicated to eradicating the financial barriers that accompany a cancer diagnosis. Like many of us, they were unsure how they were going to replace their critical in-person fundraising events during COVID. Family Reach put GiveButter's virtual fundraising tools to use by hosting a super fun and engaging celebrity chef cooking challenge where they raised more than $350,000. And if you think this was a one-off success, think again. They just did it again and raised more than $600,000. Family Reach raves about GiveButter's ability to live stream video alongside their real-time supporter feed and saw how the threaded comments engaged their audience beyond what was possible on other platforms. It's buttery goodness at its finest. Don't miss the full success story in our show notes. Ready to explore how GiveButter could help your organization take your online fundraising to the next level? Check them out at GiveButter.com. The way we scale is to give it away. Wow. Okay. Because when you haven't, that's infinite game, but it's also abundance mindset. And if you are someone that is not thinking about how do I serve my community? How do I serve my, my people? And you're thinking, how do I serve all communities and all people? And if I have something great here, why would I keep that to myself? Like, let's figure out how to replicate it. So that's one, you are one of the smartest people in this space that also is incredibly empathetic. The other piece is I am rubbing my hands together and I'm getting super excited because I love that we are talking about the victim hero narrative in nonprofits. This is something that John and I have had many discussions about, and I, I feel like you've teased this a little bit, and I want to go into the Awareness Accord. And this is an organization that you started to really bring 
break that narrative of the white savior coming in and bringing their agenda and bringing what they hope to achieve into a space of which they probably do not have either a ton of knowledge or even insight into what life is like. And so as you completed this very important fellowship, you created this organization and I would just love to know more about it and what prompted it. I think the, to, to begin with, like, I'm definitely not, I'm figuring it out. <laughs> and I don't think there's, there's a point when it's ever figured out. It's definitely a, a journey, not a destination, but I joined the mirror fellowship and it was a, an incredible privilege to be selected for this, this unique fellowship. It's, it's designed for mid-career professionals. So a lot of fellowships focus on younger folks. This one's not. Um, and it's meant to be an opportunity to scratch a professional itch that's just been nagging at you. I just had this like rock in my shoe for 20 years and I never <laughs> want to take my shoe off and like empty it out. And, and the mirror fellowship just lets you stop. It surrounds you with a community of support of people who are not in your sphere. So it makes you zoom out in a way that I'm not used to. I'm really right in the trees and not in the forest. And, and it says, okay, like take off the shoe. Let's look at that rock. And um, painful and beautiful and exhausting in all the different ways and what really nags at me and has nagged at me since the beginning of my career when I myself was a volunteer on my white horse going to, to serve in a way that I thought was, was good and virtuous as a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, even then, I just felt like, wow, this is, this is kind of messed up, the way this is set up. Like, here I am. I graduated from college yesterday, and I'm here as this expert at this rural village in Paraguay, and I don't know anything. Like, I, I'm... But I'm, I'm perceived as an expert just because of the way that I've been presented. And here I am for two years trying to do something. And it was a, an amazing experience for me. Um, but I think that the, the, just the way that that was predicated, the way that was set up, um, really got me going. And ever since then, I've, I've watched and really started looking at first volunteers and volunteerism abroad as I think it's an amazing tool for folks in the U.S. when they come back and they have this experience and they can convey the beauty of a place like Paraguay, which is no one ever goes there. So it's, a, it's cool to have. But what was the actual impact of those efforts? And I think that's what, what is it about? Is it about intention or is it about impact? And I think those are different things sometimes. And I don't think they need to be separate. I would like them to be the same. I would like impact and intent to be on the same page instead of having to choose between one or the other. And what the awareness accord is for organizations like Maya is to take on the power dynamics of philanthropy. Um, again, I think philanthropy is, and I love to preach to the choir here, is the way forward. We need to engage people. But how we engage them around their intention versus the impact is where I think, think things go awry. And I think organizations are often conditioned to just concede our power. We come into it without power, we're asking, ultimately asking for a favor or a gift of some kind. And in doing so, it automatically puts us a step back. We're on a back foot from the moment go. And so when conditions come from that gift, we usually just say, okay, we'll figure it out. Yes, well, yes, just am I getting the check? Because I'll do whatever it takes to get that check. Um, and we never give the donor an opportunity to, to learn. We never present it up front saying like, hey, do you want to have true impact with this gift? because here's how that can be achieved. Um, a lot of times it's a well-intended donor who makes a condition or two and has no idea that we've begun this dance. I liken it to like a middle school dance. We're all there, we're dancing this music and the donor's the DJ 
and we don't even like the playlist, but we just keep dancing to the same songs. And everyone's afraid to go up and be like, you know what? Like we've heard that same song 30 times, but we just change it up a little bit. It's so disempowering when you're an organization and your focus goes from your mission to serving a donor. And so I just find it incredibly inefficient when we have to do that. When we find ourselves in that awkward pretzel and we're serving the needs of a donor and their whatever it's a logistical need or an emotional need, and we're taking our eye off the ball. And in the case of Maya, it's these girl pioneers, they have enough going on where they need all the support they can get, yet 10, 20, 30% of our time sometimes is around doing these things for donors who don't want to do that. They don't, they want to mix up the playlist. And I think 2020 showed us that they they're aware of it now. They're willing to do it, but we're just too afraid to sometimes ask or to set that forth as a as a possible expectation. So yeah. the awareness for very much a nascent idea is to give organizations the tools to be able to steer into that conversation and to have the very difficult talk to power of, hey, let's come to an alignment. It's this awareness. We're both going to go into this aware. We're going to have an accord. We're going to agree that this is how we're going to engage. And I want to have the language to be able to check in with you along the way to make sure it's all, it's all about maximizing the impact because we don't honestly have the time anymore to be messing around at this dance. The world can't wait. We can't dance the same song 50 more times. We have to move forward and find a new way to engage. And it's terrifying. I have to say, it's absolutely terrifying. But if I, a guy in my 40s from a very comfortable situation in Evergreen, Colorado, if I have scary times talking to power, well, then what am I expecting girl pioneers to do here in Guatemala who've come from that situation? So there's a level of congruency. If we're expecting one thing, from our organizations, we ourselves as leaders have to be congruent with that same expectations in our interactions with the powerful in our circles. The world cannot wait for us to stop dancing. I mean, I think this is a very powerful conversation. And I think that the way that you're saying it is also very gentle because we've had, we, we've had this conversation with a couple of guests and there's a lot of people who feel very passionate about just going in and having this white savior complex. And if I can, if I can advocate almost on behalf of the donor and the volunteer a little bit, we've created that narrative a little bit. We have said, you are the hero to our mission. You are the one that's making the difference and bringing this change to bear. And so it's a philosophical mind shift to say, actually, when you come into this space, it's not all about you. In fact, it's, it's, it's not even just about them and the people we're serving. It's about impact. And this is not about what you're going to experience and what you're going to get out of it. It's about what we need from you to be able to get the biggest impact possible. And that is a new narrative that's going to be very challenging for us all to write. But I feel like you're living proof. You're sitting in the what happens when you do that. More people are empowered. And to me, the donor is served even better because at the end of the day, they don't, they don't, most donors don't care about their name on something or what they did or how they experienced it. They want the problem to be solved. They want to be a part of solving the problem. And so we have to create that new narrative. And I love the way you position that very smart. I mean, I I haven't figured this out. Just, I just want to keep reiterating that, (laughs) but I, I, I think it, it, to a certain degree, it is capitalizing on this global epiphany we had, not just around the coronavirus, but I think around Black Lives Matter, especially those of us involved in the sphere of trying to achieve social change. There was this moment of like, like our heads exploded, like, oh my God, there's so much more I need to learn. 
I thought I kind of had it figured out. And I realized I know very little about what I don't know. And I need to really steer into that. So you're right, Becky, we're hoping and kind of betting the whole farm that, that people that want those insights and want the opportunity to learn are going to steer into it versus be versus being offended by it. Like, no, how dare you question my motives and my, the way I give my money. And that's definitely going to happen to us. Yep. I, there will be some that don't come with us. Um, but we believe that there's, there's, a, there's a world where there's a space for that conversation and through coming in and making mistakes. And it's a whole new language. No one's ever spoken this, this way to donors and they've never spoken back to it. So yeah, it's super awkward, tons of mistakes, but that is also what learning is about. That's the growth mindset, right? And we think that that's, that's going to be ultimately an attraction, we hope, that people are going to want to come into that space and they can't find it everywhere else. Because I'm finding that philanthropists are often bored of the old way. They're tired and they know people are dancing for them and they don't want them. They're like, stop dancing. I just, I, I just want to be real with you. But organizations, as you said, Becky, we've, we've created this monster for ourselves in many ways. We've laid out this huge red carpet where the donor just walks and gracefully strides along the carpet and is never told <laughs> what's going on. And how boring would that be? You know, yeah. if philanthropy is supposed to bring you joy and, and learning, wouldn't this be what you want? I mean, again, big assumption on our part, but I hope that's the case. And it's it's no different than in our personal relationships. Like who wants to surround their self with people that are not just having these surface level conversations and serve, you know, putting on a good face for you. I mean, you want people that are going to challenge and push you to become the best possible person. And I just think that this is not embraced because it's hard, you know, yep. and it would force our profession to step into these are more difficult conversations to navigate, but the reward on the end is to get to the value and to the heart of why somebody would be even motivated to invest. And the investment's going to be so much bigger when you get there and you get to that value alignment and they know and believe that their money is going to do that through your organization. It's just, it's worth it. It's worth the journey to take people on. And I love that you're championing this. It's, Mm -hmm. it's incredibly inspirational. I mean, I wonder what you would say, Travis, like for, all of our people who are working in development right now, how can we talk to our donors about the power dynamic in their relationships to help break this victim hero narrative? Because in my mind, I'm thinking maybe start with your donors who probably identify as the most humble and have the highest emotional intelligence because there's some awareness there um, and they would get it first. I mean, what would you say to our friends in the nonprofit sector who are thinking I do need to address this? So the way that I'm trying to design this awareness court is around three specific steps. The first is from the outset. It's just aligning expectations. And I'm sure all of us who've ever raised funds have found ourselves into a relationship like how in God's green earth did I get into this situation? Like like, going back to my middle school dance playlist, like I'm dancing to a song. I don't even know the song. I don't like the song. Like how did I get here? And oftentimes we probably ignored a couple of really red flags that we just sailed past them chasing, chasing the check. Right. And so this initial part, I think is just aligning expectations. And as an organization for Maya, we put together an ethos doc. that just says, look, this is who we are. This is how we like to engage. And, and right up front, this is what it's about. Um, and if you don't like that, um, and it's not meant to be like a punch in the face. It's just like, Hey, just FYI, this is who we are. This is how we engage. This is what drives us. For example, we're locally led and driven. So Mayan women are running the show in Maya. 
if you're looking for someone, a, a person from the, from the United States to have their finger on the thumb of every decision of an organization, well, we're not doing that. That's not, that's not us. Um, go find somebody else, but this is a bad fit from the beginning. So just, we should agree to disagree and we're going to move on versus finding ourselves as a pretzel and then wondering how we got there. So I think there's a piece just being really upfront with this is who we are. These are our expectations. We ask what is tricky about this is asking the donor the same question. Can you now tell me who you are and what drives you? Because donors aren't used to actually telling people that in a, in a, in a deeper way. And so I had this amazing call. And just as you said, Becky, like talking to your, 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 your core donor who understands what you're trying to do. And I had a conversation with, with a guy that has always been a mentor to me and he's a donor. And he's like, yeah, I've never been asked that question. I don't even know how to articulate that. Like, I don't know how to say that. Um, and I would love to be able to present that to all the organizations I support, but I don't know. It's, it's hard. And so Maya, we're, we're tinkering with this. We put together a quiz like uh, what type of philanthropist are you? And I hate to liken it to this, but it's a little bit like those old Facebook quizzes. But I think it's a question <laughs> yes. that donors want to know about themselves. Like, I don't know. Like, am I a cerebral donor? Am I an innovative donor? Like, so we create these four categories and donors take this 10 second, 10 question quiz. And at least it tells Maya, it tells us, okay, this is the way you like to get communications. You, you want to hear stories about this. You don't want to hear anything about this. So it allows us to segment and to, to at least cater our efforts to a specific thing versus trying to broadcast everything to everyone. Wow. And, and at the same time, we get a little bit of a Dana harness in terms of our development folks. Okay. Like this guy doesn't like phone calls, prefers emails. You know, this, this woman loves phone calls and wants only stories, doesn't want data. We can start to, to at least be more efficient with the way we interact. And if we've been able to present our side, when things get awry, for example, like, oh, I'm coming with my family, you know, I'd love someone in Maya to take me on a two-day tour of the lake, that would be great. And we could say, look, you know, we, as you recall in the document we sent you, we're, we're really impact-driven. So pulling off a staff person for two days to hang out with you and your family is not our definition of impact. Um, you can easily hire a tour guide to do those things. And also the donor will be like, oh, yeah, totally. Sorry. I didn't even think about that. Like, I think when we go yes. abroad, and John, you can attest to this, yes. and you lose a lens of often a filter that we normally have in our company. You would never ask that of someone in an organization that you work with domestically, but when you go abroad, you kind of just lose your mind sometimes. Totally. And you, and you lose that. So it allows us to protect things. Um, step, step two of all this would be dignified engagement. So me and my family want to go visit a program in Guatemala. Great. Can we paint a wall? Can we dig a hole? Can we, you know, serve lunch? Can we, you know, people want to do something for someone. And it goes to that sort of hero piece that we've all been trained to do. And we say, okay, well, we, whatever interaction we're going to have is going to be dignified. And it has to be a win-win. And we all have to be learners and we all have to be teachers. So we're going to design a situation where that all those roles are there together. And maybe you don't get your fingernails dirty for that photo on Instagram. You're going to leave value and you're going to receive value. Um, it's going to be a reciprocal relationship and dignity is going to be for all, not just for one. And then the third phase being... Can we share the story? Can we all share the same story? Not how I went and dug seven latrines for a village somewhere, but how I went and worked alongside some folks and I really didn't do anything. They could have dug their own holes, but I went there as a learner and I learned so much about this culture and I love this culture. And now we're, we're bonded and we have a friendship. So it's, and, this, and the village is telling the same story. So thinking of your social media posts, instead of the, you know, the white savior with their dirty shovel standing in front of a bunch of brown children. Can we have a different image of that? Can it be just a story of like what I learned 
when I went and dug seven latrines. Like it, it, it's a flip, but it's the same story as the village would be telling as well. And so those are the three steps that we're trying to, to really align our communications with. I have to say, all of this is really, in my mindset, it's always focused internationally because that's the only sphere I really understand and know. I would assume that it has relevance domestically within the United States in, in the same way, but I can't speak to that directly. Um, I, I can only really design and think about this from more of a Maya or, for example, that she's the first, our colleagues there. I talked to them extensively about this project too because of that we're, we're operating in at the outside the U.S. sphere where the, I think the hero victim dynamic is far more prevalent. I mean, I feel like John and Julie, like we found a unicorn in the nonprofit <laughs> field and he is in, in Antigua right now. And what you're saying, Travis, is one of the smartest, most evolved, gentle approaches to how we need to be shifting the lens on how we engage, on how we communicate, on how it's not as much inward looking as it is outward pushing to the group. I mean, I'm just getting so much from this conversation. I'm going to be thinking about it for days, if not weeks after this. Because it comes about down to dignity. And I think we can solve the problems, but lose our dignity in the process. And where are we at at the end of that? You know, and so I just, I just love the comprehensive nature of it. And I would encourage everyone to go to the Awareness Accords website. There's some great resources you can get really connected and we'll plug all that in at the end, but definitely dive into this. I do think it's 100% applicable to every cause um, and just the ethics of how we're storytelling and how we're engaging and involving donors in our mission. So thank you for all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I know, you know, there's so many stories you could tell us um, with your life and worldview. What's one that's really a story of philanthropy that stuck with you um, from your time? Maybe that kind of, charted your course a certain way or just has resonated deeply with you, Travis? Such a good question. And I think, I mean, I think when, when isn't, isn't what we do as fundraisers, isn't it trying to turn a need into an opportunity? Isn't that like the, in its simplest form, it's basic. Yeah. Isn't that really what you're trying to do? Right. And, and so I here in Guatemala, one of the reasons we kind of set up shop here from the U S office moving here um, was to try and engage non-Indigenous Guatemalans in philanthropy and really, really hard here for so many reasons, the recent civil war, um, just levels of, like I mentioned before, at the top of the hour, you know, there, there's systemic issues of disparity that are so, so entrenched here. And unlike the 2020 sort of revelations in the United States, that hasn't really hit Guatemala. So it's been a process. And I think, I think back to one moment when we had brought out um, some really like, I would call like outlier early adopting Guatemala city folks who come from situations of wealth and but a real willingness to try and figure this out, brought them out to the school. And we just did this really basic activity where the girl pioneers alongside these visitors did this activity, which is kind of a slam poetry, mad libs, combination where each person comes out with this really powerful self-narrative. You can't fake it. It's all about you. And I just watched these girls present their stories just themselves, this five minute activity. And I just saw these folks from Guatemala city, just their, their jaws drop. And what it was is they, they were seeing something for the first time. Yeah. I love watching epiphanies and seeing a need turn to an opportunity. That moment of connection I find is the most satisfying thing in, in, in this world. And I think 
seeing that firsthand and just watching, and then also watching, and this wasn't so joyous, but it was really profound, is to watch this sort of dominoes in their minds of like, wait a second, like this thing's been in front of me my whole life. I've never seen it. Now I do. And then boom. And then just watching the, the epiphany after epiphany of where that means I've come from and where, how did I get here and how I see the world is now profoundly different from what it was five minutes ago. And even I'm still in contact with all of them and they're incredibly engaged in Maya now, but they're still doing it. And I think we all are still on that journey of learning, but every once in a while they just confess like you can I just be something you know confess to you that I just realized throughout my entire life I thought this and now it's actually that and just this that situation I'm learning together um and and then we can bring in our our indigenous team and they can have the same sort of epiphany the same way because this is a really divided place but there are definitely two sides to it and so when you bring those sides together that sort of explosion of reflection is is mutual and and to have that going back and forth um, I mean, that has to happen before this hero-victim dynamic can ever change. It has to be, to get to dignity, you have to have gone through this process. And I think that process is perpetual. And I think that, I think to that moment, to that question, is that moment I remember the face of one of these people, just the eyes of like, oh my God, it's like this curtain. The Wizard of Oz curtain just got pulled back and it's just this like, oh my God, I've never seen this. I can't believe it took me this long to realize what incredible talent these girls actually have that they are, they are all of that. It was a, it was a really beautiful moment and it was five years ago, but I still think back to it. Like it's a very vivid, vivid image. Okay. I love that of all the stories you could have told from your international mission, you told one about people who are in the community of which you're serving. And I have to say that just as a fundraiser, you know, we get so much joy when somebody says yes, when we've asked them for a gift, you know, we're so happy to have that funding. We're so happy to be able to move forward. But when you can see the light bulb turn on above your donor's head and all of a sudden to me, that's where everything shifts because then they're not a donor any longer. They're a believer and believers can move mountains and create movements. Donors can create you know, sustainable funding, but donors come from believers, but you also get the people who are so passionate about what you're doing that they will not let you fail. And that is what I think I love so much about this conversation. And it, I also just have to say our last and final question is what is your one good thing? And I have no idea how you're going to be able to top anything that you have said (laughs) in the last 40 minutes. So what is your one good thing, Travis? Another really hard, hard and great question. I I think, um, I just a firm believer in karma. And I think there's a piece of this that, you know, now I've been at this for a while and it's funny when you, you realize like, Oh wait, people are asking me in for like insights and information. Cause I'm usually the one asking all those questions. Right. And, <laughs> and I think there's a part, um, common humility, I think are, are, are just hand in hand and realizing that you never know what side of this coin you're going to be on. And, and therefore karma. And, and then it goes back to what I mentioned before in the abundance mindset of time and, and I'm just understanding an empathy for other organizations and where they are and what they're going through. Um, I think that when I just remember karma, I think of it's about the, it's about the movement. It's not about the organization. It's about the vision, not the visibility. It's the, like, what is this all for? 
And if it can serve a girl that's not in Maya or a girl that's in Mexico or that's a girl that's in Africa, we're all for it. Like, how can we make that happen? Um, and I think just remembering that, like, well, I would love the world to look at Maya the same way because we're going to need help. We always need help. Um, and, and just believing that if you put in here, you'll be able to pull out, you know, and, and if, but if you don't, if you just keep your blinders on and sharp elbows the way, unfortunately, this spear has been for a long time, well, then you probably get some of that too. Um, and we still get that, you know, we still get that <laughs> in the face every once in a while. Um, but we, I think that's been a, a, a large, a guiding principle for Maya is just believing in the big picture and, and not sweating some of the details that can really drag us down when it comes to organizational ego. Well, it just oozes from this conversation. Yeah. I'll say you have lifted our spirits and the goodness that you're putting into the world and sharing with the community is just um, really admirable and just have so much enjoyed this, Travis. Would you kind of point our listeners to how we can find you online? And you're right, Travis hides behind, like you can't even find his, uh, it's hard to find Travis. So Travis, <laughs> tell us how people can find you. You can find the organization Maya, yes. <laughs> at mayaimpact.org and that's M-A-I-A impact.org and Maya just to be clear is one of the brightest stars in the night sky which we really feel that that embodies what a, a girl pioneer should be and, and is and then our Facebook is Maya Impact same and Instagram Maya underscore impact would you also tell us about how people can get involved with the aware, awareness oh, yeah, accord that's a good too? Idea. because I just think it's phenomenal it's the awareness accord.com um, very much a, a beta version of a website where it's just meant to be more of a conversation starter. It's definitely not a one-stop, here's here it all is, but hopefully providing, and it's a continual work in progress, just different tools, um, frameworks that can achieve those three steps that I mentioned previously. Um, but it's there's a lot out there, and I'd love to list, and if anyone has any other great websites, to my contact information is on that, the Awareness Accord website, to let me know if I can upload and put anything else out there. Um, there's a lot going on in this sphere right now and I'm certainly not the only one doing it. Um, but there's some folks that have done some amazing work and if anyone has anything, please send it my way. We'll do. Absolutely. You got new fans in Oklahoma. We're going to build believers from all <laughs> over the world from my, uh, thank you for what you're doing. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real joy. Thanks so much for listening to today's conversation with Travis. I hope you feel motivated by Maya's mission and Travis's wisdom. I hope you hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. That's why we'd love for you to join our good community. It's our own social network, like an after party for every episode, a place to meet new friends, find inspiration and help when you feel stuck. Sign up today at weareforgood.com slash hello. One more thing. If you love what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find and join this community. Thanks so much, friends. Our production hero is our resident world-traveling humanitarian, Julie Confer. Hello. And our theme song is Sunray by Remy Boersboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.